Shortly after arriving at the Thieves' Guild hideout, Balasar and a whole bunch of paladins showed up. And Bob went out and met them before they got to the Thieves' Guild, talked to them, um, and learned that after the king had made an alliance with the vampires, Balasar and the paladins broke their oath to serve the king, and they left. So they were basically outlaws at this point. Balasar uh, knew that the vampires were evil. He knew that the king was going a little bit insane and that there needed to be a change. Uh, he wanted Hannah, uh, he wanted to help Hannah become queen. And they were kind of like, well, why the change of heart? You were going to capture her and lock her away for all time. And Balasar said that he realized that Hannah should at least be given a chance. He would, did not like the idea of somebody practicing necromancy being in charge, but, you know, he, he accepted that there was, you know, potentially some good that could come from it. Um, it would be certainly better than, you know, the current king. Which, again, you kind of have to dispel some belief because I was trying to wrap everything up. And, um, yeah, so, wasn't looking back on it, that wasn't really a great story writing point. But, hey, that's what happened. The paladins were going to, to team up and everybody said, okay. And so we just went from there. Um, the important thing that also happened from Balasar coming back was that Vesper was acting very strange. Um, upon seeing Balasar, she kept mentioning to Bob and others that there was something bothering her about him, that she was trying to remember something, and everybody was starting to get really nervous. Uh, a little while later, Vesper just disappeared. But they couldn't really go out looking for her because Hannah explained that they were ready to journey to the realms of the dead. And everybody said, okay. So they all jumped through a portal and found themselves in a world that looked pretty similar to where they were at, just a lot brighter. Now, I tried to create this really interesting and philosophical realms of the dead and, you know, to really make it thought-provoking, and eh, I don't know that it really was. It was fine. Basically, they, they, were, they learned that there was three levels of the realms of the dead. There was kind of the highest, which is, was basically heaven. There was a middle one that was just kind of like a super mundane world for the people who didn't actually try to accomplish anything with their lives, who didn't really like do good, who weren't really good, who weren't really bad. And then there was the, the lowest level, which was basically the hell, you know, where all the bad people went, blah, blah, blah. They had to get to that lowest level. Of course, you know, what's an adventure in heaven? You know, like, doesn't really make any sense. So they made their way through kind of the mundane world. Um, and then they found another portal that took them down to the lowest level. And they went there. Um, I really should have, like, broken this up over, like, three sessions and made it really challenging and all that stuff so that they really had to fight through a lot of demons and monsters and all that. But I basically, like, let let them walk right up to where they needed to go because, again, I was trying to wrap everything up. Anywho, um, so eventually they find this big old building... Um, well, obviously it was old, um, that had been built by, as Hannah described, the adventurer. She told them that the adventurer had traveled here and had locked away 
the major, you know, the high powers of necromancy away. And basically what that meant is, you know, the ability to cast any necromancy spells above like third level um, was impossible. You, you couldn't cast any of those spells really. Um, and so they were there to fix that, to, to unlock those powers. And so Hannah had to, go, had to go through these tests. I don't really remember them. I do remember realizing that it wasn't very good DMing because basically the players just kind of sat there and watched Hannah go through the tests. They didn't actually have to go through the tests. Um, but there was, you know, a boss fight at the end where they kind of had to fight an angel who was guarding the powers. And um, that fight was actually pretty pretty cool. Like, it, it was... Uh, there was the room had a lot of the, like these pillars and like Zixia was climbing up on them and trying to jump on his back. Um, there was like this apology to the angel because they knew the angel was he had been um, it, it definitely looked like he had been kind of captured and forced to protect these powers and he didn't actually want to. Um, but they were going to have to fight him to kind of, you know, get to the powers and all of that. And, um, eventually they did defeat him and he disappeared for a little while and then he reappeared and he's like, surprise, I wasn't the angel. I was the adventure the whole time. He basically explained that in his time, there was this really terrible necromancer that nobody was able to defeat. And the only way he could stop them was by taking away the power. So he locked away the powers here, but he had come to learn that there really wasn't any evil magic, that there was just evil applications of magic and so he was guarding it for somebody who was worthy to unlock those powers and bring them back into the world and so they had proven themselves worthy by passing the tests and defeating him but in order to unlock the powers there had to be a sacrifice somebody had to be willing to give their life to unlock all these necromantic powers and the person who volunteered was sir timothy and um, everybody was really sad, and but they they accepted it. Sir Timothy told them, you know, he's he'd lived far longer. He'd be, you know, he'd lived a full life already, and he was ready to to accept his rest. And so he gave everybody a, a goodbye. Um, he, you know, bowed to Hannah, the Queen of the Dead, who he had felt, you know, he owed service to because uh, he had served the original Queen of the Dead. And then he drew his rapier and buried it in the ground, laid his hat. He had a very big Barbosa-style hat that he wore all the time. He laid that on his rapier, and he stepped through this magical portal thing. And then, you know, this big explosion of white light, and then everybody found themselves high up on this balcony. And the, it was just bright and beautiful, and they could tell that they were in that heaven realm. Um, and there they got to meet some people. Um, Cafe was able to meet his brother who had been killed. Uh, Zixia was able to talk to her mom. Uh, and they were all reunited with Jesse, who was also there. Um, and then uh, Hannah was al who also appeared there, and no longer was she dressed in black. And no longer was her hair black, but now she was dressed in kind of this grayish white robe, and her hair was, you know, perfectly white. And, um, you know, she seemed happy, and around her neck was no longer the emerald amulet, but one with a large, pure white diamond. 
it was it was definitely one of the better, more like dramatic scenes, you know, cinematic scenes that I tried to create. As I mentioned in the past, one of my big weaknesses was trying to create these cinematic scenes because um, and they always seem to fall a little flat, you know, how they they went in my mind. And this one was a little bit, you know, fell a little bit more flat than I imagined it, but it was still it, it was still a good moment. I felt like it was it was one of the better attempts. Um, I have since learned, you know, that you just, you don't try to create these cinematic scenes, but they just kind of happen, and you just kind of got to let them happen, uh, which is still really hard to do, because sometimes I think I have really great scenes in my mind, but I digress. Um, eventually everybody was returned back to the land of the living. They brought Jesse with them. Hannah was now the full queen of the dead. Um, Aoa was there to greet them. And for the first time, all three queens were together. And now they simply had to uh, claim all of Mose. And there was some obstacles to that. The hoblings, you know, were still a problem. What happened with them? Um, you know, they had just, you know, eliminated a huge population in Castle Hill. There was the vampires to deal with. There was this cult to deal with. Um, but they felt like they were finally getting closer to their goal. And so, things were looking pretty good. That is, until Vesper came and tapped on Zixia's shoulder. Uh, kind of as they were, you know, just sort of celebrating a little bit, uh, Vesper reappeared. She'd been gone while they were in the realms of the dead. Um, and she had something under her arm. Or no, she didn't actually have it under her arm with her. Uh, but she told Jesse, or not Jesse, Zixia, that she needed Zixia's help to unlock a chest. And Zixia was like, I don't trust you. I don't want to come and help you. And Vesper said, well, it's actually something the paladins own. And Zixia said, tell me where the chest is. And so she followed Vesper upstairs to a remote room where there was a chest. Zixia easily uh, picked it. And she was so excited that she didn't hear Vesper shut and lock the door behind her. Zixia opened the chest and was shocked to see the shield Keshima broken into pieces. Uh, she turned around and Vesper was standing there with a rapier in hand. Her memories had started to come back. Vesper explained that she didn't remember everything, but she knew Zixia was somehow responsible for separating her from her long-lost love, Philip. Uh, and Vesper, as Vesper was talking to Zixia, she was getting more angry. She was demanding Zixia to give her answers. And Zixia explained that she had been a dragon, that they had actually killed her, and to please not be mad about that. But Vesper was mad. She was mad, not necessarily so much that they had killed her, but that Zixia had selfishly used the shield to... Um, you know, to fix a mistake she'd already made, and at the same time, removed all chance of Vesper being reunited with her husband, Philip. And, but before Vesper could attack, the door blew open, and in stepped Balasar. And Balasar said, leave her alone, mother. And then it was revealed that Balasar was actually Vesper's son. And Vesper then 
then in that moment recognized Balasar for who she was, and Balasar explained that he missed his father, but that he had accepted that his father wasn't coming back. They had waited for nearly a thousand years, and that there was just, like, he was just like, Mom, he's, or Mother, he's not coming back. I've accepted this. You need to as well. It doesn't matter that the shield was used and broken. He wasn't ever going to come back. We, we were guarding a false hope. Um, and Vesper was angry and she just stormed out and left. Uh, Zixia was really upset because she didn't like Balasar, but now she felt like she really owed Balasar because she knew Vesper was about to do her in. Even as Vesper had been talking, her voice had been growing deeper and a scaly texture was beginning to creep across her arms and her face. And yeah, Zixia could tell she was about to turn back into a dragon. Uh, so she begrudgingly thanked Balasar for saving her. And the two of them went and rejoined the others. And then things started to just get more and more complicated after that. Um, I'm trying hard not to just be going fast and trying to get past all of this. Um, but the truth of the matter is that's part of D&D. Is it's not just the story and you know how you have it planned, but the outside world affects it. You know, if somebody can't attend a session or if an event happens, you know, that affects the story. And in, in my mind, that's actually part of the beauty of it, is how the story can be affected by outside influences so much. So the story did kind of start to fall apart a little bit after this, um, as I was beginning to force it in a direction. And that's just one of the things with D&D that you can't do. You just can't force it in a direction. You've got to let it go you know, in this natural place. It does need to have a little bit of direction, a little bit of guiding, and that balance is hard to find. But I was definitely starting to get a little heavy-handed here going forward. And on top of that, I think, you know, the players were beginning to kind of come into themselves as D&D players. And they were beginning, you know, before where they were just kind of following every little hint I gave them. Now they were realizing like hey this is an open world we can go and we can really do anything and so they were really wanting to experiment with that and so it was kind of a, a bit of a, a conflict you know me trying to wrap up the story and them trying to stretch out and you know do more and again you have to remember I was really pulling from video games and also books as well you know in a book as the story approaches the third act, which in my mind we were in the third act, as the story was approaching the third act, it was, you know, plot lines start to get wrapped up and, you know, the choices start to become more limited as the direction is supposed to become more clear. But at the same time, the players were trying to stretch out and go in lots of different directions. Um, but unfortunately, just kind of where everything was at in my life at the time, you know, we were kind of entering this conflict. So kind of going forward for the rest of this first campaign, it was not as good as it had been, at least in my mind. I felt like it wasn't going very well. Everybody was still being really encouraging and supportive and said they were having a good time. So I, I trust that they were you know, telling the truth and that it was a good time. Um, but it was definitely a learning experience for me as a DM here, you know, kind of just getting to realize that the approach I had been taking so far wasn't always the best. So that's kind of how things went for the rest of this campaign but I there was a lot of really good things too you know 
um, we, well, they decided after, you know, the queens were reunited that it was time to go to Castle Hill and find out what was going on. A big part of the motivation was that Bob and Aniole wanted to loot the entire city for magical items to see what they could find. Um, but, you know, they also, you know, yeah, for the story, we also, you know, should go and see if there's anything we can do to help. So they traveled to Castle Hill, where they met Hannah's father, Orel, who had kind of taken control um, and was working on trying to clean up the city. When they first got there, it was just filled with these this terrible smell of death. They had there had been so many bodies that they had just put them in piles outside the city, um, and everything smelled horrible. Hannah, using her new powers as the Queen of the Dead, was able to make kind of these white cement dome tombs over these piles. There was just like like 20 or 30 piles that were about 6 or 8 feet tall um, and about 10 or 12 feet wide. And she just went around and, you know, encased all of them in these, t- in these tombs. Um, it was very much pulled from kind of the the Norse burial mounds, you know, but instead of it being, you know, grass covered, there were just these white domes. Um, and then Aneole and Bob came behind her and they consecrated them so that uh, undead couldn't be, that these bodies couldn't be raised from the dead into zombies or anything like that. Um, so after that, they met with Orel. Um, and Orel was hesitant and a little bit concerned because he could see that Hannah had fully come into her powers. Um, but he could see that Hannah was still herself, even if a little bit more. She was very much wanting to take care of her people. And Orel said that he was not opposed to her assuming the throne. They told him about the prophecy. They told him about the stewards. And just kind of, maybe it was just everything that had happened. Maybe it was just the stress of it all. Or maybe it was just he was glad to see his daughter again. But he accepted it all. Um, He accepted that this was destiny. And he didn't want to be king. And to their surprise, Lord Frank, who was there, said he didn't want to be king either which they all wanted to try and touch Bob's sort of truth when he said that, because none of them believed him. But he did. He just said, you know, I'm just, I'm loyal to whoever's in charge. I don't actually want to be in charge. Um, and Bob couldn't detect any deception in him. And so Hannah was accepted as the new queen of Mose. And she said that as soon as the hoblings were taken care of, you know, as soon as the hoblings um, were, I guess, brought back in, you know, as soon as this was resolved, the, the, what they had done, um, you know, that Jesse and Aoa were going to be made queens with her. So they had to go visit the hoblings and find out what was going on there. Now, along the way, they had met Nish again, and Nish had come to find Yvelda. Because with the events that had taken place at Castle Hill, he felt what the information he had really needed to be passed on. 
And so he found her, and he told her that there had been a prophecy long ago. Um, this is my first fantasy story, so I was allowed to lean into all the prophecy stuff, okay? There was a prophecy from long ago explaining that Yvelda, or that there would be someone called the Ochnil. That the Ochnil was a prophecy among all the orcs. Um, that some a, a person who was kind of in between the orc world and the the civilized world would come and help the orcs join normal society. Now in D&D there's like these playable races and kind of these monster races and one of the problems is and it's actually something that's being addressed today um, with everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and all of that, how there's kind of like these evil races and these good races, and how that it really shouldn't be like that, you know, that every creature should have the right to be good or evil. Um, now, th that's, I, I absolutely agree with that, you know, to, to an extent, you know, like a lynch is just always, I mean, not necessarily always, but, you know, is, is probably always going to be evil. But I didn't play it that, you know, there's like certain colored of dragons are actually evil and certain colors of dragons aren't evil. I didn't play it like that. You know, blue dragons, which was John the Bard, you know, were supposed to be evil. Um, and I didn't actually play it that way. You know, I just kind of said that they weren't. Um, dragons were good or evil, just kind of depended um, and so in my mind I, this was kind of a way to sort of challenge that trope of you know the orcs were an evil race I didn't I didn't agree with that and so there was this prophecy that the orcs would be brought into society and you know kind of made to be like the other races you know the hoblings the dwarves the humans they were all kind of part of this one society Gr granted they were different races but they were all kind of on you know, we, I don't want to say the civilized society, but their culture allowed them to live together, to be together as one people. And the orcs secretly wanted to be a part of that people. But their culture was so warlike and so abrasive that they, they weren't able to. They were just a warring people. That was their culture. And they knew their culture needed a change, but they needed somebody to be who was in between the worlds to help them make that change. And they had a prophecy about the Ochnel, who was going to be that person. Nish's family were kind of the seers who were to identify that person. And Nish had identified Yvelda. And so he told her that it was her destiny to journey among the orcs and to, to unify them, and to help them become part of the new Mose government. And everybody said, okay, because they were just great like that. So, that was a new piece of the puzzle. And one of the challenges they knew that they had was the vampires. The vampires were, they had attacked Silver Plunge, and recent reports told them that they were, you know, all those people that they had killed were being turned into zombies and that they were creating an army. That the vampire's plan all along was to overthrow all of Mose and to turn it into a vampire kingdom. 
um, and the cult was kind of a part of it in helping them and using the vampire's resources to try and find Aneole. So there was lots of moving pieces here, um, but I had a plan to kind of wrap it all up, as I said. Um, and so part of it was to go and just kind of wrap up this hobbling civil war thing. So that's what they were on their way to do. And Yvelda told Nish that they would go and visit the orcs after they kind of took care of the hobblings. So they traveled through the Sage Hills to get to kind of the hobbling capital, Sageville. And Jesse explained that the Hoblins all ha had about seven different clans, and each clan kind of was in charge of a different trade. Jesse was from the Bobber clan, who was mainly in charge of fishing. Uh, the Coke clan, which ran Silver Plunge, was mostly in charge of the mining. Um, there was the Cash clan, who did a lot of the ranching. Um, and there was uh, a couple of others as well. Um, there was one in charge of logging. There was one that was just kind of in charge of a lot of the miscellaneous trades uh, and things like that. And each clan had either a patriarch or a matriarch. And after the attack on Castle Hill and kind of the collapse of the human Mose government, that Jesse had learned that all of the hobbling clan, member, or clan leaders were in Sageville now. Um, some of them had been captured and were kept in the camps, but the camps were now empty. You know, it was just chaos. Uh, there wasn't anybody keeping them there because all the soldiers had been called to Castle Hill. So the Hoblins were starting to unify in the Sage Hills, but a massive part of their resources was now under the control of the vampires. So they had to go to Sage, uh, Sageville and find out what was going on and if there was any chance of making peace with them. So along the way, they met uh, Thrandor and John again. They had kind of gone their separate ways after they went into the the home of the dead long ago. Um, at least it felt long ago. In reality, it had probably only been a couple of weeks. I think I was keeping track of it for a while. I think in total, this whole campaign... Lat went went over the course of one month, but I don't remember exactly when. Um, but for the players, it had been several months since they had last seen John and Randy. So seeing, I thought I'd bring them back in again at least for a little while, just because there was, you know, we had gotten rid of Sir Timothy, who had been a, a very fun part of the group, but I didn't want to have too many NPCs in the party at one time. So now that Sir Timothy was gone, I thought I'd bring back John and Randy for a little bit. Um, so John and Randy traveled with them to Sageville. Jesse was with them. And they got there and called for a meeting with the clan members who were not looking forward to meeting them. They were pretty hesitant to meet, but eventually they agreed and they had a talk like over the the city wall. There was this big palisade that went all around Sageville. And the clan members refused to come out of the city, but would talk to Jesse over the palisade. Um, they gathered that um, the the leader, whose name I believe was Jacob Sage, he he was the patriarch of the Sage clan, who were lived you know in the Sage Hills. They, that was kind of their area. They did a lot of like ranching and other things there. Um, they were definitely one of the poorer clans, but he seemed to be kind of the leading voice for the other patriarchs and matriarchs. 
Um, to Zixia's surprise, she recognized Marla, the Thieves Guild leader um, there. And Jesse later explained that Marla was actually the matriarch for the Bobber clan. Um, and she hadn't really been doing much of that since the war started. She'd gone into hiding and was just being a thief full time. Anyway, um, the clan members said that they refused to, and it was really just this Jacob Sage talking, but that they refused to join the Mosaic government, um, that they were planning to uh, take charge themselves, and they would not recognize Jesse as their leader because Jesse had, they, as they, they said, Jesse had betrayed them. Um, and so they, the party kind of left feeling a little bit defeated. However, as they were back to their camp, again to their surprise, Marla showed up with some very important information. Um, there was definitely some obvious beef between Marla and Jesse, and Jesse later explained that Je when Jesse, Jesse was the older of the two sisters, and she explained that Marla was her sister. I don't know if I mentioned that before. Yeah, Jesse and Marla were sisters. Jesse, uh, when their parents died, Jesse was supposed to take over the matriarch, uh, the mat, yeah, the matriarch role of the Bobber clan. But she didn't want to. She just wanted to be a thief. Um, and she kind of regretted that because she also knew Marla wanted to be a thief. Um, but Jesse ran away. And Marla took on the role of being the matriarch. She didn't want it, and she very much resented Jesse for dumping it on her. But instead of doing to somebody else what Jesse had done to her, she kind of took it out of pride and stubbornness into trying to show Jesse that she could do what Jesse could not. But she hated it, and she kind of hated Jesse for leaving it to her. So that was explained a little bit later, but at the time Marla came and told them that Jacob Sage was manipulating and controlling the other clan members. The clan members weren't behind anything that he was doing. That he, through fear and manipulation and even some uh, other more nefarious methods, he was controlling everybody else. That it was his idea to drop the, the poison bombs on Castle Hill, that nobody else liked it, but they were all afraid of him. And Marla said that if they could take get rid of him, she could convince the other clan members to to unite and rejoin Mose. So it was an assassination mission. Um, and at this point, everybody was starting to get a little bit more sense of morality for their characters, and so nobody wanted to go and assassinate this old hobbling, except for Aneoli. He was fine with it, so they let him go and do that. So Yvelda, you did some magic. Um, actually, John dropped them in, and Elizabeth cast Featherfall on them, and they airdropped into the city on top of Jacob Sage's house. And they snuck in. Well, Aniole snuck in. Yvelda dropped in with him just to be the teleporter to get him out and cast Dimensional Door, and they could get out of the city really quick. So Aniole snuck in. Uh, did the deed, but while he was inside, he found a cultists. Um, he was able to gather the clues and learn that there was a cultist who was uh, working and kind of advising Jacob Sage. And so they were able to realize that the cult was just 
pulling all the strings here, it seemed. They were also able to deduce that the cult had supplied the hobblings with this magical bomb that eliminated all the population of Castle Hill. And so that was some important information, and now they really needed to get rid of the cult they uh, were gathering, because the cult was just crazy. Um, so they managed to take out Jacob Sage. Uh, Yvelda was able to get them to escape. Um, and I definitely, looking back on this, should have planned for them to have another option. Because I was kind of forcing them into doing something that I didn't realize that they some of them would be a little bit uncomfortable with. That it was going to be a moral dilemma to assassinate this old man. You know, even though he was bad, it definitely made some of the players a little uncomfortable. And I regret that. And I definitely need need to be better in my future DMing, and I'm trying to be, you know, of giving them choices and letting them really decide how they want to go about doing things. Anyway, they took care of that, and they left the Sage Hills going back to Castle Hill. Marla eventually later reported that the Hoblings, you know, with Jacob Sage gone, agreed to swear allegiance to the new government. Um and the Civil War was officially over. And that is where we will pick up on the next chapter.